There are certain unusual places in the world. There is Antarctica. There is Borneo, Tasmania, Madagascar, Petra, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and so many other unusual places. Uh, Some of you have been to some of these places, and they are unique. Micah will tell us about another unusual place in Israel, an unlikely place. As we know from last week's passage, he gave a report on the millennial kingdom, this future kingdom where Christ will return and establish his earthly rule for exactly 1,000 years. And while that distant future reality will most certainly happen, there are more events that will happen in the meantime. And so let's look at chapter 4 of Micah, verses 10 and 11. God's word tells us this. Rise in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city, the camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, where you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. And so Micah looks beyond the Assyrian captivity, You can see in the first circle there, the Assyrians captured the northern part of Israel, known as Israel, in 722 B.C. But then that happened right after Micah prophesied, after he wrote this book, this short prophetic book. Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel. But then about 140 years later, um, 165 years, if you add on the 25 years Uh, between Micah's recording of this prophecy to the Assyrian captivity, then another 140 years to the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he writes about Israel, and he calls Zion a woman in travail, a woman in deep distress. And we see Israel described as such in various passages of Scripture. For example, we see that also in Revelation chapter 12 when we covered it last year. Babylon, though, as it is recorded by name, hadn't even become an empire yet. It was still part of Assyria. When Micah wrote this, Babylon as an empire did not exist. It was not a world power yet. Assyria was the impending threat. But Isaiah prophesied also this future kingdom to Hezekiah. He says then, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that, uh, all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. So the word of God, the word of God is accurate. It is a powerful thing. It is not just the work of men. It is the work of God, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, carried along the prophets as they recorded these words, not just of contemporary events, but also of future events. And so Isaiah prophesied this as well to Hezekiah. Remember, Isaiah was also a contemporary of Micah. Micah also stated that they'd be camping in the open field as they traveled from Judah to Babylon. And it is there, according to verse 10, at that place where they would be rescued, which seems odd since you're going into captivity, but it is in that place that you will also be rescued. Babylon would be conquered by Persia, 
and Cyrus, the king of Persia, would allow the Israelites to return. One empire just gobbles up another one. It happens now, it happened then, and it will happen until Christ returns. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, it is recorded that in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah also, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and he also put it in writing, and he wrote these words. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. And so the Israelites return under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah as well. God, who is sovereign, will allow his people to suffer natural consequences, but they will also suffer persecution. But in the end, in the final analysis, at the end of the day, they will most certainly be preserved. And so the first point could be this, that the sovereign God's people will be systematically opposed, but will also be saved. And so even from our own experience, the Jewish people suffered pogroms, exiles, genocides, anti-Semitism, terror, and war. Certainly they are what the prophets have called them, a woman in distress, a woman in great travail. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Romans are all in the ash heap of history. But there is one nation, there is one people group, that perseveres on and not only survives, but also thrives, and that is the Jewish people. But that is them. What about us? What about God's new covenant people, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones of Christ? Those who are made up of believing Jews and also believing Gentiles. What about us? I believe that this principle also directly applies to us. So we see what's going on in the text. We see the general principle that applies to all people of all time, all of God's people of all time, and we see it applied in Israel, God's old covenant people, but we see it also applied to God's new covenant people as well. God promised us, Christ promised us, that there would be persecution. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said this, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Second Timothy writes this, or Paul wrote this in Second Timothy. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the Jews will be opposed, but also the church of Jesus Christ will also be opposed. There is hostility in all the large countries of the world today, and many small ones as well. China, India, Russia. Last year, I was in the Punjab province with a uh, large organization, and we got to go to this area of India where there aren't many Christians in the Punjab province. And we got to see about 400 people graduate to do church planting. And it was amazing. They were so exhilarated. They were so enthusiastic. But just the week before, there were some radical Sikhs who had come into the churches and 
with large clubs and broke, broke it up and chased people away. Then the very next week, we go to this conference center to celebrate the graduation of these 400 men who would become church planters in that part of India. And so um, I don't think I ever told you this part. So we had the ceremony, and they graduated, and it was great. And But everything was really pretty quickly done. It was almost rushed. And I found out afterwards why it was rushed, and only afterwards did I find out that they, they said, oh, yeah, you know, we, uh, we're kind of been doing this under threat. Um, and so what we did is we formed a security force. And so in order to get to that community center, you had to cross a bridge to get over a rapidly moving river. And so there was only one way to get to that community center from the road. And so they formed a security task just in case the opposing Sikhs would come and disrupt the graduation ceremony. And they said, yeah, our plan was to put all the men, just bunch all the men on that bridge to block the hostile forces so that way all the women and children could escape out the back. And I said to them, thanks for telling me this after the ceremony. (laughs) So I saw persecution. I mean, we get mild opposition here in this country. That's there, and it's rising, but yet that's persecution. But yet the church is growing And they are also enthusiastic, and they appear in the open as much as possible. They're not afraid, because they truly believe in what the Word of God says about our God. And so they continue to preach, they continue to teach, they continue to disciple, they continue to plant churches. And the gospel is not hindered, in fact, it is hastened. It grows and spreads. And so... In our culture, opposition is based upon worldview. There is secular humanism and postmodernism that are aligned against a Judeo-Christian worldview. One day, it will be overruled, but for now, there is Satan's dominion here. It despises the gospel because it despises the one who made and taught the gospel, Jesus Christ. Satan wants more than just to oppose God, Satan wants to replace God. Satan is the one who wants to receive the worship that God truly deserves. It despises the gospel. It, because the, boss, the gospel says what? The gospel says that we're sinners and we're far apart from God. The gospel also says, and almost insults our egos, and says that there is nothing that we can contribute to our salvation. It's 100% the work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, it says that we're sinners and we're opposed to God. Secondly, it says that even if we wanted to save ourselves, we couldn't. And then it adds a third layer of insult on the human ego as well. It says that Christ is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no one can come to the Father but through me. It is a narrow gate of salvation. So the world system, naturalism or secular humanism and postmodernism just does not like that message. It is opposed to it. That, That even though God's people will be opposed, God allows us, and get this, don't miss this, because this is an integral part of your and my discipleship, that even though God's people will most certainly continue to be opposed, 
God allows us to be part of the plan to respond to his enemies. Whoa, what? Look what verses 11 through 13 tell us. It says, but now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. Ah, But they do not know. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor, rise and thresh, O daughters of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hoofs of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Some see this passage referring to the war of Armageddon. And it may include that, but it could also include the theme of Assyria and Babylon's attacks on Israel and Judah, which I think it does. But personally, I believe this is a very general statement. It is a grand summary of all the attacks, past, present, and future, on the nation of Israel, and how Israel will most certainly be victorious In the final analysis, you see, it all begins with the fact that verse 12 reports to us that they don't know what they are doing. They don't know who they're messing with. (laughs) And they do not know what he can do. You see, the nations, all they see are the riches of Jerusalem, the treasures of the temple, the gold and the silver and the precious stones. That's what they see. And their eyes go wide, just like they did with Hezekiah as they sent emissaries to Jerusalem to scope out the temple riches. And Hezekiah let them see everything. And that spurred on. So they gloat over Zion. They say, we need to gather in Jerusalem so we can take their stuff and steal the glory of their God and give that glory to our gods. But God is gathering them. They think it's a really good idea to gather in Jerusalem, but little do they know that God is actually the one who is gathering them. Whether it is Egypt gathered in the Red Sea, whether it is the Canaanites gathering in Jericho, whether it is 185 Assyrians gathering in their camp and then on that one night the angel of the Lord slain all of them, whether it is the nations gathering in the Jezreel Valley near a hill called Megiddo, God will allow the nations to gather and they will gloat, but God will give Israel the victory. And the battle belongs to the Lord. Even conquerors used to set apart a portion of their spoils to the gods of their temples. But Micah reports to us that victorious Israel will devote the wealth gained from their triumphs to adorn the temple of the Lord. I believe it will be that temple in the millennial kingdom. That temple of which... Ezekiel reported seven chapters of detailed information of what it will look like, its scope, the mechanics of it, and its measurements. 
God will give his people victory. The sovereign God will use his people to subdue his opposition. But then the New Testament reader may feel like he's in the dark a little bit, that he doesn't belong and that there is nothing for him. But yet this general principle also applies to the ecclesia as well, but in a starkly different way, I'm happy to report. We won't subdue by force, but rather the weaponry, the armaments, and the goals are quite different than under the old covenant, under the new covenant. God will subdue the nations by grace. He will subdue the nations through his gospel message. And we are called to go into all the nations, leaving no stone unturned, and to make learners and followers of them, disciples of Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week in one of the services, I forget which one, but a conference I went to, Carolyn and I went to in California about church planters, uh, they reported that of the 8 billion people in the world, 3.4 billion of that population has never heard the gospel before. We're excited about the second coming, but they haven't even heard about the first coming yet. That's almost half of the world's population. And then this horrible, depressing statistic of which I will report to you because I'm not about only giving you bad news or good news. I'm also about giving you all of the news that 176,000 of those 3.4 billion people die every day, 99.9% of them most likely going to a Christless eternity. Allow that to sink in. It's truth, but it's a truth that we must absorb. It's a truth that we also must respond to. You see, the sovereign God will use his people to subdue his opposition. The opposition isn't so much the people, but the force that is controlling these people. And so will they be released to hear the gospel? Will they be released to understand the gospel? Will they be released to respond to the gospel? And then also to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. So there we have it. But the objective reader might be thinking now, this is a big mess. How will we respond to this? And we need a leader. Who will respond to this mess? Who will lead Israel to conquer her enemies? Who will lead Israel uh, to implement and assert the plan of God that Micah reports to us in verse 12? Well, the false prophets and the poor leadership of Israel were the source of the problems as to why Israel was so weak and wicked in the first place. So we know it won't be them. And now, in absolute stark contrast, at first, it seems, it seems that the news gets even worse. Look what the first verse in chapter 5 says. It says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Zedekiah, the final king, the last of the line, the final king of the nation of Judah. Oh, 
the northern tribe, Israel, has already been swallowed up 140 years before, and now in 586, Jerusalem, the center, the walls, the temple, all will be devastated. And this last final king of Judah, they put to death, they put to death his sons in front of him, and the last thing that he sees is his sons dying. All of the hopes, all of the dreams of the nation gone with them. The line of Judah, perhaps, or the line of David, perhaps broken. And then his eyes are plucked out. And then he is carried off to Babylon in chains, thoroughly humiliated and hopeless. It seems, it seems like all hope is gone. The line of David is obliterated. The kingdom and any hope of it is gone. God's promise to David, uh, that one from his line, would reign forever and ever, seemingly lost. But then, but then, but then, and the Hebrew says, now. Now. But now. An unusual and unlikely place. A village. A town, a small suburb of Jerusalem was introduced. It it was the birthplace of Boaz and Jesse and and King David. And look what he says in verse 2 as this massive pivot in the book of Micah takes place. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so there is this place, this small suburb called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It is an older name for Bethlehem, some commentators say it actually represents Ephrathah, represents the region around the town itself. And so it is the place where this future ruler would one day be born as Micah now projects 700 years into the future. He goes beyond the 25 and the 165 years into 700 years into the future. This is his prophecy And it is the place where the Christ would be born, in most likely a grotto or a cave, as you see on the screen. And so this this truth will take place, that the eternal leader will come from an unlikely place. From the least significant place will come the most significant person. Out of you will come the one who will be the ruler and the people of the time of Jesus understood that. They got it. That's what the chief priests reported to Herod the Great. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judah. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land 
of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Does that verse sound familiar? Yeah, it's Micah 5 too. So they quote that verse because all along they knew. They knew that the Messiah would be born in this most insignificant place. But Micah reports this uh, destination, this village to the readers, of which we are included, of course. But he also includes other information about some of the aspects of this most important ruler in that he is absolutely eternal. And Paul reports this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, that he was equal with God. He, Jesus, was king, and he never stopped being king. The difference is, you see, he did not demand to be treated like a king, even though that was always his identity. That was the grace of his humility. And he is eternal. He is timeless. Paul reports in the book of Colossians, very simply, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is eternal. He is 100% God, and also 100% man, without those two natures intermingling at all. He is the perfect God-man, the Son of the living God. Deity himself, but 100% human being. He would be born in this insignificant place, the most significant man ever to come to the face of the earth. And so Israel, and so church, the line of David, it will not be broken. It will most certainly continue He will sit on the throne of David, and God will most certainly fulfill his promises. Merry Christmas and happy Incarnation Day. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you with great confidence. Thank you for your prophets. Wow. Were they ever accurate? And they wrote with such beauty about such great things. Thank you for telling us in advance what your plan is. It is thoroughly trustworthy. It is life-giving. It is life-directing. We can base our futures on it. I pray that we will thoroughly be delighted by it and choose to enjoy it and allow it to become part of our spiritual DNA that we would breathe and eat it and allow it to form our countenance, to change our behavior and our choices. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the prophets of them. And I pray that in this special season, the joy of all of these great truths will be heightened. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we join our voices in response to God's word.